You may be seated. Real quick, uh, we have been over the last several months um, creating a contact list for all of the folks who make the auditorium your kind of church family and come here. So if you have not uh, signed up and been part of that list, we'd love to have you uh, give us your information. Again, we're not going to load you down with spam and all sorts of things, but just occasionally uh, send out communication about what's going on here in the auditorium. So on the back table where there's coffee, there's just a Real quick form, there's pens back there. If you just give us your information, that would be great. If you're not sure if you're on the list, the list is back there. So take a look, see if your name's on it, make sure the things are correct. And if it needs to be corrected, just fill one of these and then just leave it on the table and we'll make sure that we pick it up after the service. Uh, it's joy for me this morning to introduce John Ferrer. John uh, actually preached in the auditorium. It's been years though, right? So John and Hillary have been members here at Third for a long time. They are both just uh, gifted and brilliant uh, theologians and apologists, and I uh, can't wait to have John come and share with us our first week in the Psalms. Come on up, John. Welcome him. Come on. There we go. Thank you, everybody. Uh, so I come here f with a background in um, apologetics, defending the faith. I uh, did seminary, I was in the educational field, and I would routinely run into this, uh, this issue every once in a while when I'd tell people I do apologetics. I'm an apologist. And I, in my mind, I'm thinking everybody knows that means defending the historic Christian faith. Uh, but sometimes people don't know what the term means, so I would inevitably eventually hear this, what are you apologizing for? And I used to get indignant about this because, you know, I, I'd hear, that's not what apologetics is. Here, let, and then I'd go into teacher mode and try to explain to them the significance of apologetics. Uh, but the years have seasoned to me a little bit. And um, I, I've come to realize that this other sense of apologizing is something we need to be equally as good at, right? <clears throat> also, marriage has taught me that too. Um, who here would like to have a spiritual breakthrough? I think pretty much all of us, if we're honest, could, could raise our hands and say, I would love to have a spiritual breakthrough. Well, there is one tried and true way to have a spiritual breakthrough, and that is to confess hidden sin, secret, unconfessed sin. Confession, uh, we think of as just verbalizing wrongdoing, and that's a sense of the word. Uh, but a more theologically exact sense of it is to agree with God over your sin. To recognize your sin for how God sees it and to agree with him on it. And then uh, forgiveness is his act when he uh, absolves us of that somehow. Uh, repentance is a U-turn, is when you stop doing it and you go the other direction. And these are all parts of, of what that restored relationship looks like. Uh, but if we're, not, if we're ever not willing to confess that sin, then that's a part of our lives that we're kind of blocking up God's blessing in us and through us. Unconfessed sin can, can be a tremendous obstacle, not just for our spiritual lives, but for the whole realm of our spiritual influence, including our spiritual authority that we may have. We're going to speak to husbands 
you have a, a, a kind of spiritual authority in your household where you're to be modeling Christ to your household. And if you have unconfessed sin, then you might be putting an umbrella between your family and God's blessings so that he's just pouring down blessings on your family and you're getting in the way. <clears throat> I'm speaking to husbands because I am one, but the same thing could extend to, to wives, to moms, to grandparents, uh, to singles. We all have some degree of spiritual influence. And if you want breakthrough, one of the secrets is confessing sin. Uh, now, imagine, I'll, I'll role play just for a second. Imagine I were to uh, break into your garage without your permission, of course, because I broke in, and, and without your knowledge, I take your car on a joyride, I run it into a tree, but I manage to hobble it back into your garage, close the garage door, uh, sneak off, and, and you're none the wiser. You don't know who did it. I come a week later feeling like, oh, someone's going to find me out, and, and I, better, I better get this off my chest. And, and I come to you to apologize, to confess my sins. Now, now in that scenario, tell me, how would you grade this apology? Man, I shouldn't have borrowed your car. That was a big mistake on my part. I apologize for taking your car on a joyride, but you did leave the keys out for anyone to see. And, well, yes, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings, but, you know, nobody's perfect. I wanted to tell you as soon as it happened, but I was worried that you'd feel so hurt that you'd never recover and you, you might do something drastic. I was really worried about you. I was trying to protect your feelings. Really, I was looking out for you. Uh, yes, I did it. Will you forgive me? Uh, and remember, Jesus says you have to forgive me. 70 times 7, right? <clears throat> now, how do you grade that apology? Is that a very effective apology? <clears throat> Young one has a lot to learn about how to apologize. Yeah, that, that was a terrible, terrible apology, especially when you try to add on to it. Now, can we just put this all behind us and act like it never happened? Let's just sweep it under the rug. You heard every tactic in bad apologizing there. You're, it's dismissing, it's diverting, it's dodging, deflecting, denying, and dodging. You caught that. You caught that. Uh, these apologies miss the mark, but I, I want to go from, from silly to serious. That example isn't something that's likely to happen, but something that is more likely to happen in the contemporary church today is, is a lot more uh, destructive. About a week ago, the Southern Baptist Convention released a report uh, acknowledging hundreds of, we've got young people here, but, but crimes of a sexual nature. And these are only the ones that were convictions. We're not talking about people that had to step down because everyone knew it, there was wrongdoing, uh, but they were two adults, so there wasn't a crime. But it was betraying a trust, it was ruining a, ruining a marriage, it was setting a bad example. And these were church-splitting type of disasters, hundreds of times over in the largest denomination in America. 
And we could say, oh, that's Southern Baptist. That's not us. <clears throat> well, it happened in the Catholic Church on a, an unprecedented scale. Oh, but that's Catholics. That's not us. Well, we just separated from the Christian Reform Movement for, for difficult teaching and for affiliation with, with certain teachings about how marriage works that could constitute sin. If you want spiritual breakthrough, confession is, is the seed of it, is the beginning of it. This, this is the state of, of Christianity in America. We're in a, we're in a tough spot. The, we've just barely begun to lance that wound. There's a lot of healing that still needs to happen. A lot of uh, changed lifestyles and outlooks that needs to go on right now. So let's take a look because we need, to get, we need to get better at apologizing. We need to get expert level at this. For our own sake, for our family's sake, for our community's sake, for our local church sake, and for the church universal. The sin of other denominations and other churches should grieve our hearts too. I tell you, prepping for this sermon has been heavier on my heart than, than any sermon I can remember. It's just been a burden on me because the, the kind of sin that David, King David, is confessing is the kind of sin that is happening all across America. Verse 1 in Psalm 51. Turn with me to Psalm 51 in your Bibles. Verse 51. <clears throat> I'll try to move quick. I've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, but I'll try to, uh, this will be available, I believe it's being recorded, right? So it'll be available if you need to review anything, and I'll try to be available afterwards if you want to catch up with any notes or anything. So Psalm 51, verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So that's the context. That's setting the stage for this psalm. If you're familiar with the story, David, back when his soldiers are out going to war at the time of year when they go to war, he's kind of idle. He's, not, he's a warrior king, effectively, but he's staying back. He's letting the young bucks do that, and he's idle, hanging out on the rooftop of the palace, surveying his land when he notices a beautiful woman bathing. She's not on the roof, by the way. There's no bath on the roof. It's probably at a cistern or well. And he's just in a high position on top of his palace to where he can see what people on ground level can't see. And so he's a peeping Tom. He's looking in. So that's, you know, sin number one, right? Because he didn't just notice and turn away. He, he noticed. <clears throat> he's looking. And then he sends for her and has her come to the palace. Now, how many options does she realistically have when the king has summoned her to the, to the palace? She's got very limited options, realistically speaking. He's put her in a, in a no-win situation. And then he has his way with her. And then she reports back that she's pregnant. And he tries to cover by having Uriah, her husband, come back off the front lines of battle. So maybe they'll consummate and maybe it'll look like it's his baby. And, you know, Uriah's too upstanding to enjoy home life while his brothers in arms are, are in, in war. And so he won't comply 
Long story short, he ends up having Uriah killed. David ends up marrying Bathsheba. And everyone's none the wiser except for maybe a couple of his servants. He could have gotten away with it. He's the king, remember? But God saw it. And God sent Nathan the prophet to call him out on the carpet. Which, can you imagine being Nathan the prophet in that situation? You're going to go call the highest authority in the land you're going to go call him out on a capital crime, according to Hebrew law. Two times over. A capital crime. You're going to say, sorry, king, you deserve to die here. That's not exactly something you're marching happily into. But, but I got to give David credit that, that he was cut to the heart over this. So he gives us this psalm in part as response to realizing his sin isn't secret anymore. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. There's no rationalizing, no self-justifying excuses. He's pleading for mercy. Mercy is to get better <clears throat> or less punishment than you deserve. He knows if he got the punishment he deserved, he wouldn't be breathing anymore. He's pleading for mercy that he does not deserve because that's, that's what mercy is. It's undeserved favor. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he said transgressions, iniquities, sin, wrongdoing towards God is rarely just a singular act. It's usually multidimensional, layered, complex because sin travels in packs and it grows like yeast. It has this multiplying, spreading influence that it ends up turning into lie upon lie upon lie to cover your tracks. Self-justification, rationalizing to make yourself feel better in light of the wrong that you've done or to, to convince yourself that God, God doesn't see it or God approves. We've got all sorts of tricks that we resort to to try to cover our sin and a lot of them are more sin. He also sees his sin as filthiness, like, like to be dirty. I work in carpentry right now in a woodworking shop, and I spend a lot of my time in the spray booth. And even, even when I've got all my garb on, I'll still get paint on me. And if I came home without spraying off, without washing off, uh, Hillary would barely recognize me. So I have to go into the bathroom and I can't just do that little cursory five seconds under the water and, and split. I have to scrub because this is the kind of stuff that cakes on. It sticks to you. It's paint. Paint's designed to stick. It's not supposed to fall off easy. And that's, that's not even getting into the grossness that, that David's talking about. It's not just dirt on you. It's, it's muck. It's mire. It's garbage. It feels, for him, sin feels like being covered in fecal matter. It's not just refuse. For I know, verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So in verse four, this sounds a little odd because it sounds like he's saying God's the only one he's offended here. But 
hasn't he brought sin on Bathsheba? He's put her in a, in a, a lose-lose situation. He's sinned against Uriah. He's sinned against a lot of different, in, in a lot of different ways here. Well, here's the thing. David is the highest authority in the land. Who else does he answer to according to natural rights? There's only one person he answers to, God. Whose law did he break? Everybody else might have laws against murder or against different kinds of sexual assault. They might have those kinds of laws, but they're only getting it from the original source, which is God. Ultimately, the only law he's violating is God's law. And the only one above him that he really answers to as the king of the land is God. In that sense, against you only have I sinned and done what is blameless in your sight. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, a lot of people look at this and take it one, one way theologically, but I think there's, there's depth to what he's talking about. There's different kinds of of a wrong that he feels that go all the way back from his sin now to all the way back to the beginning. When he started, there was sin all over the place. He was, but I want to point out that brought forth is probably too passive a word. Uh, the, the word in Hebrew is halalti, and it can speak of dance, or when it's talking about child labor, it's more like a writhing, like writhing in pain. It hurts so much, you're squirming and you're moving. It's just unbearable. You can't sit still when you're hurting that bad. So when he says brought forth, it's more like I was born in writhing labor into gross immorality. That's what he feels like. And in sin did my mother conceive me. In Genesis 3, going back further, Adam and Eve are both cursed for their sins. Adam is cursed in his field labor. By the sweat of his brow, he can only, only by the sweat of his brow can he bring fruit and vegetables forth. But Eve is cursed in her child labor. It's not going to be birthing a little egg and then it, then it hatches and grows and it didn't hurt any. It's going to be painful. It's going to be trialsome. That's the curse of sin. His the curse of sin goes all the way back to birth. So what that means is, is David uh, was birthed into sin in the sense of being birthed into a sinful world. He was also ritually impure. There's about a seven-day cleansing period according to Hebrew law because fluids from the inside went to the outside. And... That's ceremonially impure. They have to go through something. It has kind of a semi-medical value to it, but also signifies the purity, uh, the preserved nature of what, it, what God deserves when we're going to the temple for worship. So it's ceremonial, ritual impurity. He's born into a sinful world. He has a sin nature in his heart to where he's going to be inclined to sin. He's born from sinful parents. And the very act of birth is a reminder of the curse of sin. He's born into sin in multiple different ways. And he feels all of that right now because the burden of his current sin is just sitting heavy on him. Verse six, behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is God delighting in truth in us. 
and planting wisdom inside us, we have different ways in which we relate to truth. Different ways in which we relate to truth. Sometimes we relate it in terms of evasion, because the truth hurts, we don't want to deal with it, so we dodge. We're avoiding it. We're evasive. Other times we relate to truth as decoration. It's something we put on for Sunday mornings. We walk in the light of life. We, we act like a good Christian. The, the truth of Christ is something we pretend like we live through the rest of the week. But, you know, we take off our, our church vest after church on Sunday. And then we go back to the rest of the world and act like we normally do. Because truth for us in that case is decoration. It's adornment. It's like clothes. We can change our clothes, then live in a lie the rest of the week. Other times we relate to truth as separation. It's something that, that we, we want at a slight distance. We want it arm's length. We want it nearby so it's useful, but we don't want it close enough to really get uncomfortable and to start having to change our lives. Other times, we relate to truth as manipulation. It's something that we take into our hands and we try to make it into something else that we prefer. That's kind of what people say, mean when they say, my truth? Oh, that's not my truth. My truth is different from your truth. Well, is it true or not? If you disagree with it, you're wrong. If you accept it, you're right. Good for you. But it's true whether you like it or not. But there are people who look at truth not as something to conform to, but something to conform. Something to take it and make it fit me, because I'm the standard bearer. I'm the reference, not God's truth. And then still others of us, and I think what he's getting at here, we relate to truth as medication. We don't always relate to it in evasion, decoration, separation, or manipulation. I know. Asian, 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 I get it, yeah. I'm a preacher, what are you going to do? Uh, but we relate to it as medication. It's something that you have to internalize. It doesn't work until you get it inside. And then you have to let it do its job. You have to let it take effect. You have to let it change you so you can be healthy again. So when he says, I, you delight in truth and in the inward being, he's talking about truth that sinks in. We've internalized it somehow, like, like food, or, or better yet, like medicine. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, I don't know much of anything about making plants grow. But I can Google. And I Googled hyssop here. Hyssop is a garden herb. It's in the mint family. I pronounced it right. I kept the H in. Thank you. It's not herb. It's herb. It, but it, it's got, it can be used in teas, it's got some medicinal properties, it could be a spice, uh, but what it's most known for is serving in ritual purification in, in the sacrificial system. It would be combined with scarlet wool and with cedar wood in burnt offerings. Apparently it had a pleasant smell. <clears throat> but it's also what's used to offer, uh, it's a hyssop branch with a sponge on it, and some sour wine, and that's what they offer to Jesus to drink from. But I think what David has in mind here is that this is also the branch used to paint blood across the doorpost in Passover. When he's asking to be purged with hyssop, he was asking to be spared from the death sentence. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You may have heard a song that, that has some of this in it. I, I hear in these words uh, the, the heart of someone who mourns over a broken relationship. His, he's, David's the kind of guy, I, he's gone to battle. I don't think he fears death a whole lot. I think in David's mind, he fears a broken relationship with God more than he fears death. I really do. He, he's got this, this weird personality quirk where he'll do extremely unpopular things if he thinks it's what God would prefer because he's a very principled person. He can, he can have a horrific lapse because he's deeply passionate. So, so when he's following God, he's all in. And when he's running from God, he's all out. <clears throat> Because he's, he's got that personality type. But I don't think death is the biggest fear for him. He relates to God in this way that, that it's so close. When it's broken because of his sin, he's just broken up over it. He also notes when he says, clean heart, willing spirit, right spirit within me. The heart of confession is indeed a heart issue. It goes back to the heart. You can play the part, you can say the words, you can act the role, but if it's not changing your heart, then you're just playing. I don't think David's playing. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. There's two, two ways, I think, to take this. One, he was already kind of a teacher before. He was writing psalms. He was setting an example. He was the king. People wanted to hear what he had to say, and it was, it was trusted as wisdom. He raised Solomon, the wisest man, so he probably had something to do with, with Solomon's learning. So he's wanting to be restored to his position of teaching. But I think there's another way we can take this. He says transgressors. Transgressor means uh, someone who's in rebellion or who's... Re um, antagonized, been a hostile enemy to. To transgress is kind of like to be uh, a severe antagonist. And that's what he is right now. One spy, one secret agent is, can be as destructive as a whole army. You take one person in a prestigious position in the church and turn them against God, even for a short while till they have a huge lapse, and they can do more damage than a whole church of Satan, than a whole army of atheists. David was a transgressor acting like, like a, a secret agent for the other side because he knew better, and he still did worse. <clears throat> so he would be in a unique position to teach rebels, transgressors, how to come back to Christ, how to get right, how to come back to God. Kind of like how recovering alcoholics are in a uniquely empowered position to minister to other alcoholics. 
transgressor, former transgressors, recovering transgressors are in a better position to counsel and minister to current transgressors. So I don't think he's bargaining with God. I think he's saying, I want to be restored to a position where I can take this wrongdoing and turn it into ministry. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, verse 14. O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Remember, he was a songsmith. He was the poet prince. <clears throat> Singing is, is a, a worship language for him is pretty natural, and he wants to be able to sing songs of God's righteousness and salvation again. Oh, Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 15. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We've got a lot of ways that we try to avoid actual repentance. There's a lot of tips that we try to use. You heard some of them in that pseudo-apology that I opened with. But when it comes to actually turning from our sins, we've got a lot of ways to, to try to lessen the blow so it feels easier or we can actually not even do it. Uh, sometimes it's just self-justification. We give a defense, an excuse for why it's okay for me to do this even though I know it's wrong. Self-justification. We can also revert to a quick fix, a little patchwork. Oh, I've got cancer. Just give me one of those Band-Aids. That'll do. No, you can't put a Band-Aid on cancer and expect any real healing. Then there's, this is an interesting one, a self-punishing cycle. We've done wrong. We deserve judgment from God. But instead of trusting ourselves in his hands and handing our sin over to him, we say, God, I got this covered. I'll punish myself. I got it. Leave you out of this. And, you know, we self-flagellate or we beat up on ourselves somehow. And we try to take control. This is popular among control freaks. Take control over our own punishment and make sure we feel really bad. And then once we feel really bad over our sin, we feel absolved. We feel like, oh, whew, I'm glad I, 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 I took care of that. And then we go back in our day and we return to the same sin doing the same thing, and then we go into the same self-punishment cycle because we're still trying to maintain control over our own punishment because we're not really trusting ourselves in God's hands to do it. That's a self-punishment cycle, and it's, and it's a control-free tendency where we're still not actually repenting. We're getting all the way to the one-yard line, and then we're fumbling, and then we start back over on the other side of the field. <clears throat> Then there's not digging deep enough because we're scared of what we'll find. Or evasive misdiagnosis. We don't want to admit this, so we admit this other thing that's easier to admit. Or just sin hopping. We've got some, some underlying issue that we really need to dig into to, to confess if we're going to find real healing. And so we treat it with this one sin. Well, I confess that, repent, I give it up, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stop smoking. But then we were... Not that all smoking sin, but the way some people do is definitely sin. <clears throat> then there's drinking. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that and, and try to hide this trauma or this sin issue in my life. And I'll confess and repent about that. And, or, or weed or some other drug or some other uh, video gaming or something else to dull the pain so I'm not actually getting healing at that core thing. Sin hopping. There's all sorts of tricks we revert to. David, however, is wise to go to God. 
Do good, verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. David is king, remember? His spiritual authority is broad. And when he sins, it's like an attack on the walls of Jerusalem. He's left the, the nation vulnerable. When parents sin and hold on to it in secret sin, they can leave their domain vulnerable. Their kids are more vulnerable. We saw this happen at a church that we were at uh, in Dallas. The former pastor who had, had left, I think, just a couple weeks before we arrived, he, he was caught in sexual sin, and he confessed, he repented, he stepped down, and like the day it happened, the day he confessed and stepped down, they started having spiritual breakthrough after spiritual breakthrough. Folks were calling into the church office saying, my marriage has never been better, and it happened like overnight. I finally uh, was able to kick this addiction. We, I finally restored this relationship that's been bottled up and, and on, the, on the rocks for years because secret sin was confessed. Breakthrough was happening. Then will you delight, verse 19, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He's not saying, let's, it's all a heart issue, let's get right at a heart level and then we'll be good because you can still keep that secret. Your secret sin can still be a secret if it's all contained in your heart. You might be right with God, but you're still wrong with other people. You're still living a lie. But he's talking about getting, starting at the heart level and it manifesting in the public expressions of repentance, the public purification, the, the hard work, putting the work boots on. Because even if you're forgiven and you're going to heaven, you can still have natural consequences. You could still have an unplanned pregnancy, a venereal disease, a drug addiction, alcohol addiction, a broken relationship, a betrayed trust. You can still have natural consequences from these things. And I think God lets a lot of them sit right where they are because otherwise we'll go right back to the same sin that caused it. So what does all this mean for us? How good are you at apologizing? I'd like to think I'm better than I really am. <laughs> And I suspect a lot of us are probably in that same boat. Gary Chapman, who wrote about the five love languages, uh, and I'll be wrapping up with this, who wrote about the five love languages, uh, has a, a companion book about the five languages of apology. He talks about apologizing in five different ways. I'm sorry, that's expressing regret. I was wrong, that's accepting responsibility. How can I make it right? That's making restitution. I'll take steps to change my ways and prevent it happening again. That's planned change. And then five, can you find it in your heart to forgive me? Requesting forgiveness. Apologies that don't include all of those can, can fall short and feel kind of flimsy and insincere. If you want spiritual breakthrough in your life, it's going to start first with confessing to God, getting honest with him, because you've never effectively lied to God. 
You probably tried all the time, but it's never once worked. If you thought you were lying to God, you were just lying to yourself about God because he's not convinced at all with any of the games we play. There is no Instagram filter or Dutch front that ever had God fooled. So you might as well quit lying to yourself about God and confess, get open, let it start there and then be praying for wisdom and guidance in how to multiply that confession to the people you've wronged. This is surgery, folks. You can't do this, this uh, slipshod. Repairing relationships is surgical. And you need wisdom. You need, you need counsel. You need, you need the fellowship of believers to, to bounce these ideas off and say, how should I do this? A trusted accountability partner, maybe even a therapist. But you have to get serious about repairing those relationships because your relationship to God is directly tied in. Your relationship to God is directly connected like, like a, a T-section. That vertical relationship ties into your horizontal relationships. And if you're wrong here, you're, you can't get very right here. And if you're wrong here, you can't get very right here. Let confession roll down. Because our churches, we, we've got so many blessings that God wants to pour out on your lives. God wants to pour out on this church. And I think we've taken a major step in the recent transition. But I think there's a lot of churches, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of families, there's a lot of communities that still have some deep unconfessed sin. And we're not quite yet ready to let God's truth transform us medicinally from the inside out. But let it start with confession to God. Take this time as we have some thoughtful, reflective music to search your heart for where you need to start confessing to God. And they'll be praying for the wisdom, the love, and the courage to confess with others who, you, who need to hear it.